Please uh, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 7 to 8 this morning. I'm going to read from verse 4 just for a little bit of context. We looked at verses uh, 4 to 6 last week. And then uh, we'll finish off uh, Paul's instruction here to the Philippians uh, in 7 and 8. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your considerate spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is dignified, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, consider these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for your word and for the opportunity to study your word, to reflect upon it, and the principles, uh, the implications, the applications are especially found in these two verses. Lord, help us to understand. Help us to see these uh, verses in the context of Paul's letter. Help us to receive uh, instruction to remember your word and to apply it to our lives. And Please speak through me as I speak your word. That you would guide me, guide my tongue, and that my words would be your words. And your words would go forth in power and precision to impact the hearts and minds of your people for your glory. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Many people in uh, society, um, in uh, different religious organizations, uh, sports clubs, uh, business, military, um, they understand the power of the mind and our thoughts and how. Uh, cultivating our minds and uh, directing and fo focusing our thoughts have uh, a huge benefit and an impact on our lives. There's this uh, term you, or this acronym um, you may have heard of before called uh, PMA or, or PMO, a positive mental attitude or a positive mental outlook. And there is, uh, in a sense, a uh, a category or genre of self-help books of positive thinking. Um, and even from a secular, worldly perspective, um, there is some benefit in that. Of course, those benefits are usually self-centered and worldly. Um, but nonetheless, uh, people know the, the, the benefit of... Um, guiding your mind and your thinking. Um, you uh, may have heard of uh, uh, 
times or uh, sports uh, teams or um, even uh, Olympic teams where the coaches or they've had uh, psychologists who have um, taught the athletes to, uh, to, uh, to envision winning or each step of their um, athletic contest or their, their sport and going through each motion and envisioning um, the, the goal or the end state, the objective um, of, uh, of winning, um, being successful, and it's had an outcome. And so there is a sense uh, where even from a secular perspective, we see the power of cultivating the mind. But that's ultimately um, an aspect of the way God has created us as worshipers. That um, even as uh, Solomon has said, and, and many of his proverbs, as a man uh, thinks in his heart, so is he. Um, that are um, you've heard uh, other preachers have have said this saying that you. Um, you sow a thought, you reap an attitude, and you sow an attitude, you reap a word or an action, you sow an action, you reap a habit, you sow a habit, you reap a character, so to speak, that, that everything flows from your thoughts, from your thinking, but even more so of the, the, the object of your thinking. And there is this concept of, uh, that we see here um, but we also see in, in other places in society this concept of active thinking versus passive thinking. And sadly, in our day and age, that most of our thinking is passive. And this is cultivated by our media and our advertising um, that we would rather watch a movie than read a book. Because the movie is quicker, but there's not much active thinking involved. And uh, even in terms of our technology, um, it has, in a sense, uh, shortened our uh, attention span, that we want everything quick, and we want information right at our fingertips. We want to be able to uh, just type it in Google and get the answer. And so there is a sense that, that um, we are being trained, so to speak, to um, think passively. But there is this, this sense of... Um, uh, the significance of um, our thought life and active thinking and cultivating the mind, even from a secular perspective. Of, um, there's this one uh, author um, who uh, speaks and writes about productivity. And uh, he wrote one book called Deep Work, and this concept of deep work, of having uh, that time devoted to just... Um, unhindered, uh, undistracted, focused thinking on one problem. And he said that there's, there's very few people that are actually able to do this anymore um, because there's so many distractions in our society. It's interesting, one uh, Christian leader who is um, very intellectual um, wrote a book uh, in his book, uh, Conviction to Lead, Al Mohler, um, he, he writes this. He says that most human beings evidently do not like to think. At the very least, most seem quite satisfied never to think in a concerted, critical, and careful way. 
They never think strategically, consistently, or critically. They go from thought to thought without reflection, analysis, or questioning their own decisions. They operate at the basic level of thinking, and they think about the things that interest them. But they are not seriously interested in the process and quality of thought. And this is, in a sense, what, what Paul is calling the Philippians here to, to uh, think uh, strategically, consistently, critically, um, to uh, dwell upon the Word of God, upon the principles in the Word of God, and, and even things um, in your life and things in the world that um, uh, you see connected to the Word of God, to God's creation, to His uh, authority, His movement in the world, His decrees, that you think upon them, you dwell upon them, because it has a significant impact on your life. That, in a sense, uh, right thinking leads to right living. And there's, there's uh, throughout the Bible, we see the importance of thinking right in uh, those things that the Bible speaks about, those ultimate issues, those eternal matters. Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 10, as he speaks about um, uh, taking your thoughts captive, he speaks about uh, the importance of thinking right in, in, in terms of uh, uh, spiritual matters, religious matters, uh, ideologies, ultimately spiritual warfare. He says this in 2 Corinthians 10 and verses 3 to 5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. As we tear down speculations... And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is fulfilled. And he's speaking, he says these verses are in the context of spiritual warfare and he's talking about strongholds, these strongholds that, that people are held captive in, these false religions, false ideologies, and, and it's... It's all aimed at the mind, at our thinking, our perception of the world, of eternal matters. And he talks about taking every thought captive. That, that all these, these strongholds, these speculations, these ideologies are raised up against the knowledge of God. And so, the, in a sense, the, the battlefield um, in terms of spiritual warfare is of the mind, of ideas of truth versus lies. And so there is a sense that our thinking is extremely important in terms of ultimate issues, eternal matters. But more than that, our, our thinking is imp important. It's significant in terms of our spiritual growth and our sanctification. There, there's a couple parallel passages to this, the, the uh verses 7 to 8 in Philippians 4. And, and as I commented so many times in going through Paul's letter to Philippians, uh, that um, his letter to Ephesians has a lot of the same issues that he brings up. It, it, it's almost, um, in a sense, a, a parallel letter, as is his other prison epistles, uh, the Colossians, uh, and, and many of his writings, that he brings up a lot of the same if, issues and, and uh, teaches on a lot of the same things. But... In speaking on spiritual growth in the body, Paul writes this in Ephesians 4. 
And you could turn there, Ephesians 4 and verse 17. And it's kind of almost expands upon his thoughts here in verses 7 and 8 of Philippians 4. In Ephesians 4, 17, he says this. Therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you heard him and were taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, to lay aside in reference to your former conduct the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and to put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He's talking to them that, that though they are for the most part predominantly Gentiles, they're, they're not Jews, um, but they have been called into the body of Christ through the Spirit of God, um, through regeneration. They've been called out of the world and all worldly philosophies and ideologies and false religions. And, and now they are in the body. They're in the church. They are believers. And so now they are to no longer walk as they used to. And part of that is no to no longer think as they used to. But they are to cultivate and renew a new mind that is is fashioned and is guided by the truth that is in Jesus, the truth about Jesus, the truth about the world, the truth about God, about reality, about the sinfulness of mankind, uh, the, the world as it really is, and they are to walk according to that truth. And there's a sense that, that Paul says the same thing here to the Philippians in verses 7 to 8. And it's interesting, as we read these verses or uh, rather 8 and 9, I said 7 and 8, but 8 and 9, he, he starts verse 8 with, finally, brothers. And it's interesting because as he says finally, he, he said the same thing in verse 1 of chapter 3. He starts off chapter 3 saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on along that stream of thought of, uh, about how rejoicing in the Lord and putting all your joy, all your hope in the Lord is a safeguard for you. It guides you. It protects you from false teaching. It, it is, in a sense, the core of, the, of Christianity and Christian religion to rejoice in God, to rejoice in Jesus Christ, to worship Him in our thoughts, in our attitudes, and our whole being, our affections. And, and then he goes on, he expounds upon that point, and, and it's like one thing after another, and then he gets to verse 8 of chapter 4, and then he says again, finally, brothers. It's like, well, didn't you, wasn't, you just said your final thing, didn't you? But and, and it reminds me of, you know, many of you may have seen that, that old uh, detective show, Columbo, where he talks to somebody and then he's walking away and, he, away and he's like, one more thing. <laughs> one more thing. And so this is where Paul, he's like, one more thing. And, and it's really, in addition to everything he said, he's expounding upon it. And then he says, finally, brothers, 
whatever is true, whatever is all this whole list of things they are to think about and then the things they are to practice. And then in verse 10, he will get on to actually ending his letter and, uh, and uh, saying some final things. But here's probably his final instruction, the last words he wants in terms of instruction, exhortations. And so here we have a, a few exhortations. He gives, in a sense, three final exhortations, but really two commands and then uh, a promise. But there's three exhortations here before ending his letter. And so first we see the exhortation to right thinking in verse 8. And then we'll see the exhortation to right living in verse 9. And then at the end of verse 9, the expectation of the Redeemer's presence. First, the exhortation to right thinking. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is dignified, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable... If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, consider these things. Or some translations might have think upon these things, dwell upon these things, consider them. And so in this exhortation, we have two things, two aspects. The content of the exhortation and then the specific command. The content is this list, uh, whatever. And, and you'll notice that, that in this list, it, it's... He does give some specific things, some subjects, but it's not very detailed. He has whatever is true. So in that realm of truth, think on that. Whatever is dignified. So in that realm of dignity, think upon those things. Consider those things, the implications, the applications, how you can then apply that to life. Uh, the, the, all that is within that realm. And so the content, and it's interesting that he starts off with whatever is true. Whatever is true. As the Bible continually asserts that it is the word of truth. And even Jesus, at his trial before Pilate, he said he came to testify of the truth. And Pilate, in a sense, mocking. We don't know the exact tone. Maybe it was a sincere question. He says, what is truth? And the sad thing, that, that is the question of our day and age. What is truth? And, and it's not really a sincere question so much as it is an excuse. It's a smokescreen. It's, it's a way out. It's a way of dodging the question, of avoiding accountability, of avoiding responsibility. Because if I can question what is true and what is real, then I'm not sure of what is real and what is true, and so I'm not really sure of what I'm responsible for or what, whom I'm accountable to or uh, morality or anything, any sort of standard that I could be held to. I'm, in a sense, free to live however I want to and not only live however I want to, but determine my own reality, which is, is just insane. It's insane that, that you as a, a thinking human being can, in a sense, decide to determine your own reality. Can you change the weather? Can you change gravity? Can you change what many people want to do, their own biology? Not necessarily. You can't change reality. It is fixed. And so as Paul says, whatever is true, he's, he's talking about 
that which is honest, real, genuine, that which accords with reality. That is what is true. Truth is that which is real, that which accords with reality. It is the world as it really is. But in the past century or so, we've had this movement called uh, modernism and postmodernism, a secularization of our culture and our society where uh, people and intellectuals and elites question uh, what is truth. They, 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 they take God out of the picture or try to take him out of the picture, put themselves at the center, and they're the arbiter of what is truth uh, or what is real uh, or what the world or how the world is really put together. This sense of moral relativity. And, you know, as they go about their lives living according to their own desires and even uh, rejecting any source or standard of truth, and then claiming a higher moral ground that is saying, well, you know, that's your truth, you have your truth, and I have my truth. And it's easy to burst their bubble by saying, well, is that true? <laughs> and how do you know it's true? What's your standard? What's the standard by which you measure what is true? And for a long time, uh, one of the, the untouched uh, realms of thought was mathematics. Because, you know, you can say that in the moral realm and, and question truth in the moral realm. But then when you get to mathematics, you can't question, because you can't, you know, question mathematics when it comes to engineering a plane or a bridge or, you know, other sorts of things that, you know, we need to do and, and think about to, in order for this world to function. But now in even our day and age and even in uh, universities, people say, well, does two plus two really equal four? Yes, it does. There's a standard here. God has created a world that is fixed, that is intelligible. And yes, mathematics aren't found in the Bible, but it's part of God's general revelation that we see that there is form and function in the universe. There's complexity. The universe is intelligible. You can know things. It's observable. The fact that the scientific method works, and I say the scientific method, not science, because there's so many theories that people will say, they'll, they'll come up with a theory and they'll say, that's the science. So it must be true. No, well, the scientific method works because we live in a logical uh, universe that was designed by an infinite um, intelligence in our God. And Paul calls the Philippians to dwell upon, to consider those things with, which are true, to dwell upon uh, everything in the realm of truth, not, not those other ideologies or foolish speculations outside of the realm of truth, which we so often hear in our day and age, but to dwell on those things which are true, because by dwelling on those things which are true and going to the source of objective truth in the Bible, then we can discern what is not true. Because we renew our minds by what is true. And what is sure. And the only thing that we really know is true and sure is the word of God. Because it comes from God. 
There's some things that we can observe and we can learn, such as like math and science and, and through logic and testing. But the only thing that we can be 100% sure of is God's specific revelation given in His Word. And that is one of the realms of truth that we are to consider, we are to dwell upon. We are to renew our minds by what is true. And then the second thing, the second subject, he says, whatever is dignified, whatever is noble or honorable, as some translations might see, uh, that which is evoking a special request or, is wor- or special respect or is worthy of respect and honor. And it's interesting that we can sometimes see that which is dignified or a person of dignity from their position or their title. But I remember this this concept of dignified or noble or honorable. I remember it seeing seeing it most clearly displayed in the military, where everybody's dressed the same, so you can't in a sense, dress in a dignified manner. There are, you know, parts, some uniforms that are a little, you know, somewhat dignified, but where everybody is dressed the same, and then even irrespective of rank, you can sometimes see a person, notice a person that irrespective of their dress and their rank, they carry themselves with dignity. You can see by the way they talk and the way they speak and the way their, their character this is a dignified person. There's dignity. There's uh, nobility. There's honor in this person and their character. And that is what Paul is speaking to. Those things that we see in other people, we are to consider that, consider their lifestyle and adopt that. Third, whatever is right, um, whatever is righteous, whatever is fair. This term dikaios that is used throughout the Greek New Testament to translate as righteousness or righteous, whatever is right and fair. And then fourth, whatever is pure, whatever is holy. And it's almost like these, these traits, these subjects, these topics, they overlap one another. They overlap and they interconnect. And they, there is also a sense that they build upon one another. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, holy, whatever is lovely. In this term, lovely, um, one lexicon says it pertains to that which causes pleasure or delight, that which is pleasing, agreeable, lovely, amiable. But but it's not that that is uh, considered pleasing in a sinful sense, but in a holy and pure sense, as he just said, whatever is pure. And so he, he goes on that same stream of thought, whatever is lovely. This is those things like a a beautiful piece of art or a beautiful piece of music or natural scenery or just something that is that you can look to and you say, that's beautiful. That's that's lovely. That's that's good. He's saying dwell upon those things. And then and then six, whatever is commendable, whatever is praiseworthy or honorable. And then to to top off his list he says, anything of excellence and then anything worthy of praise. This is, in a sense, these two catch-all items. Uh, anything of excellence. Uh, this Greek term, uh, erite. One lexicon says, a term denoting consummate excellence or merit within a social context. 
Um, as he goes on, he says, exhibition of arete invites recognition resulting in renown or glory of military valor or exploits, but also of distinction for other personal qualities and associated performance that enhance the common interest. This is the, the Olympian who has disciplined themselves uh, through many years uh, to uh, win a gold medal, and not just in terms of their athleticism, but in, in terms of their character as well. Um, that they are an honorable person. Um, it's the, um, you know, the, the Medal of Honor winner that did these, these uh, great uh, sacrificial acts of heroism to save somebody or to win the battle. It's, it's uh, the um, musician who has practiced their whole life to play beautiful music. Um, it, it's those things in our culture and in the world that are excellent, that, that we can see, you know, that is what God intended for a human being, to, to reach that potential uh, of character, of discipline, of... Um, using their God-given gifts and talents to create something beautiful, to be excellent in their career or their craft or their hobby or their gifting. And then Paul tops off this list with anything worthy of praise. Anything worthy of praise that you see. And so all these, these topics, these subjects, uh, they're, they're uh, like a realm of just the world and living uh, 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 in, within the realm of, in a sense, uh, God's natural design, that when we see, and even unbelievers, when we see them rise to a, a level of character or excellence, we can say, you know, yeah, they're, they're, they're not a believer, but there's something in them. They're, they're, even despite their unbelief, they are, in a sense, living according to, somewhat according to God's design. Yes, they need to repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, but there's something inherent within them that God has designed in, in, in creating us as image bearers. That, that for a moment, um, it, it seems to uh, reverse the curse, so to speak, or, or it shines through the curse of mankind. These things which are dignified and excellent worthy of praise. We are to think upon those things, but primarily our thinking is to be uh, governed by uh, what is true, the word of truth. And we are to filter our thinking through what is truth by renewing our minds in the truth. And so he has the content of what we are to dwell on, and then the command, that he says, consider these things. This term, logizete, or uh, uh, this term where we get logic and study to uh, determine, to reckon, to calculate, to give careful thought to a matter, to think about it, to consider it, to ponder it, to let one's mind dwell on it, to ruminate. And, and notice how in giving this list of things to consider, to think about, to dwell upon, that Paul doesn't give a detailed list of do's and don'ts. Which we would often, many of us would like in our Christian life. We would like a, a, you know, a long 
list of, of things to check off and, and just say, I did that. I thought that way. I dressed this way. I went this place. I didn't go that place. It, it would make things easier. But the Christian life is about um, a relationship with Christ, about worshiping him in everything, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And there is a sense of, of Christian liberty as well, that we have liberty in certain things that we uh, uh, do or hobbies or activities we partake in, uh, that we have some liberty, but we are to do all things to the glory of God, and we, that requires some thinking in those gray areas. And he gives us these, this, this, he gives us, Paul gives us this list of subjects and categories of thought to dwell upon, to meditate upon these things. That, that, that this term uh, makes us think about that biblical meditation, which is throughout the scripture. We see it most notably in, in Psalm 1. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law he meditates day and night. We are to meditate upon the word of God, but also, even as Solomon tells the sluggard, go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways. And so there is a sense that, that we primarily meditate upon the Word of God, but there's things which in God's creation that we can learn from as well. Those things which are true, which are dignified, which are right, which are pure. We meditate upon those things as, as well. And, and we renew our minds by these things. As Paul um, writes to the Romans, and he that, that just treatise, his, in a sense, his magnum opus, his greatest perhaps his greatest writing, um, as he expounds upon the gospel and for the first 11 chapters just lays out the gospel. And then in chapter 12, he says this as he gets to application, as he often does in many of his letters. He speaks of, of the right doctrine and then the right application, the right practice, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And he says this in Romans 12, Therefore I exhort you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good, and pleasing and perfect. It's almost somewhat of a parallel passage. He's saying this is the, the process of sanctification. It begins with your, your thought, your thought life and what you dwell upon. John Owen, he said this, he says, The mind is a leading faculty of the soul. When the mind fixes upon an object or course of action, the will and the affections follow suit. They are incapable of any other consideration. The mind's office is to guide, to direct, to choose, and to lead. And so holy living begins with holy thinking. A, a, a big part of the Christian life is our minds and what we dwell upon and the, the content of our thoughts. This is why Peter writes to in 1 Peter 1, and he's speaking to 
those believers and he's telling them how to live in the midst of persecution, how to live faithfully, how to live holy lives. But he begins in 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 first Peter one and verse 13, as he is going to call them to obedient, holy living, he begins by saying, therefore, having girded your minds for action, meaning this 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 picture of girding up your loins as the Hebrews and, and, and many people in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world would do as they often wore tunics and in, be, in preparing for work or preparing for battle, they would have this term to gird up their loins, which means they would take that long tunic and the ends and they would tie it up um, kind of like a big diaper so they could move around and they could be flexible and they would, in a sense, what it's saying is, Tie it all together. Bring it together so that you don't have loose ends flailing about that can get caught up and stuck. And so what Peter is saying as he tells the believers to gird up their minds or, or having girded your minds for action, he's saying tie up all that loose thoughts, those loose thinking, the, the, the places where your mind just tends to drift unaided and, and daydream about. He's like tie it up, think clearly and then as you tie up those loose thoughts in your mind he goes on he says being sober in spirit fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ think about his return about your salvation think about eternity and then as obedient children not being conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance but like the holy one who called you be holy yourselves also in all your conduct, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And that begins with holy thinking and a renewed mind and a sanctified mind. And so as we go through these two verses, and I see the time, I spent most of my time on the first exhortation, because that is the most important, it is our thinking, and so we'll uh, cruise through the rest, but nonetheless, it is all about the mind, uh, that this exhortation to right thinking, it, it, it goes before this exhortation to right living. We, we can't live right until we think right. And so he gives this exhortation to right thinking, and then this exhortation to right living. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. He's saying, think right, and then put that into practice. And specifically, those things which I have taught you, and others, and not only the things that I have taught you, and the doctrine which you have received, but my way of living, my manner of living, my, my Christ-likeness, uh, what you have observed, uh, put that into practice, follow that as well. And, and this is, in a sense, uh, the process of sanctification, which uh, Paul, uh, he expounds upon in many passages as I've quoted, but there's one concise passage where he talks about this. And the first time I heard this, I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching on it. And in his British accent. And so every time I read it, I think of that. And just him preaching upon it. And it says this, Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God, that though you were slaves of sin, you have obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching to which you were given over, or which you were, uh, were saved by. 
And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And what he's saying is, is in a sense, you have obeyed from the heart the pattern of teaching or doctrine which you have received through your mind, and you have engaged your will. It starts with the mind, then the heart um, engages or, or fills the affections of the heart, and that engages the will, and that, that um, manifests itself in right living. And so as Paul gives this exhortation to right living, it comes after right thinking, and then he gives the, both the model and then the modeling. He kind of inverses the order where in the verse 8 he gave uh, the content of what they are to think about and then the command to think, and now he in a sense gives the model and then, uh, and then uh, or, um, what they are to do and then, and then the modeling. He says this, he says, uh, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, the model, Paul, follow me as I follow Christ. This is in a sense what he says in, in uh, verses 16 and 17 of, of chapter 3, as he tells them, let us keep walking in step with the same standard to which we have attained. Brothers, join in following my example and look for those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And so it's not necessarily just Paul himself, but he is the one who brought the gospel to them and explained the gospel, and he is an apostle. So he's, in a sense, using his apostolic authority concerning their right living, uh, flowing from their right thinking. He is saying, those things that I have taught you, you practice those things, those things which you have seen in me, but it's not um, uh, comprehensive. It's not everything but those things which he has done faithfully, as he would say in another passage, that follow me as I follow Christ. That it's ultimately Christ and the Christ-likeness and the, the, the teaching, the apostolic teaching that originated with Christ. That you follow that. You practice that. Beginning with the truth, the truth of, of God's word. And then you model this. You, you model what you have learned and received. Don't just learn for the sake of learning. Don't just uh, sit through Sunday school or, or a sermon and take notes just for the sake of taking notes. And so you've compiled you know, journals of notes, but the, the end of it is to put that into practice. We are to take notes, we are to learn, and part of that is taking notes and, and, and thinking, and it helps with our thinking and, and, and learning, but um, the end of it is to practice it. You know, we could think of as he talks about pr putting things into practice we, and, and modeling and discipleship, we could think of those people that, you know, well, I learned this from so-and-so. Uh, so-and-so taught me how to be a good husband or a good wife or um, to, to how to evangelize, how to witness. Or, or I had a Sunday school teacher who taught me how to read my Bible. The, the certain aspects of Christian living that you learn from others and you uh, observe from others because it's not just what you have learned and received, um, what you have been taught, but what you have heard and seen. Those things which you have observed in others, which implies that you, in a sense, need to be observant. 
You need to be an observant believer and look at other faithful believers. And as I've said other times, and many other preachers have said, to eat the meat and spit out the bones. That you look at those things, where they follow Christ in the certain aspects of their lives and adopt those things. Which means you have to be observant, not aloof. Which he, he kind of hints at in his exhortation to right thinking is that we are not to be aloof, just bumbling about, drifting, um, just being led around by uh, what seems right in the moment. I like what one commentator writes. He says, beyond having a proper spiritual outlook, the Philippians are to practice what they have seen Paul doing. As they make progress in this way, they will find that it is not simply the peace of God, but the God of peace himself who will be with him, with them. And so that brings us to our, our final exhortation, this expectation of the Redeemer's presence. As we uh, uh, renew our minds and we think right and then we put that into practice and we live right, there should be this expectation of God's presence with us as he says, the God of peace will be with you. And as that one commentator, in a sense, uh, 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 flipped what he said in verse 7 as he talks about anxiety and worry and fear and he talks about how to battle anxiety in verse 6 and then verse 7 and he says, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But now he says, not only will the peace of God guard you, but if you think right and you live right, the God of peace will be with you. And there is a sense that, that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. Or the, present. There, there's no place that we can go where he is not or where he does not see us. But there's also a sense of God's um, presence, a, a deeper sense of his presence as we are living in obedience to his word and we are filled with the spirit. And in order to be filled with the spirit, you must be um, in a sense, uh, renewed by the Spirit, regenerated by the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, that comes at salvation, but we are also commanded to be being filled with the Spirit, continually being filled with the Spirit. And how we are filled with the Spirit is by obeying the Spirit in His Word, which He has given us and He's laid out clearly. It's not an emotional, ethereal, mystical, spiritual experience, so to speak. Though there are experiences in the Christian life, uh, we, we can't solely, as we learned in Sunday school, we can't solely base our lives on our experiences because our experiences are somewhat subjective. So we filter those through the Word of God. But nonetheless, if we are obedient, we should trust in the fact and find comfort in the fact that God is with us. As he would say to many of his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we, we, we see, we expect the Redeemer's presence in response to our obedience, but also in response to His promises. And he says in John 14, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. Even that promise at the end of the Bible that, that, that the dwelling place of God is with man, that that will be the ultimate eternal reality for the, all those who have repented and believed upon Jesus Christ. But there's also this promise of his 
presence of his dwelling, of him going with us wherever we go as he tells Joshua. Which is in a sense almost like an Old Testament parallel passage. Uh, Many of you have have memorized this passage and it's a good passage. Joshua 1, 8 to 9. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way successful and then you will be prosperous. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be in dread or be dismayed for Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. The sense is we renew our minds, we meditate upon the word of God, whatever is true and whatever the Bible says is dignified and excellent and right and pure and lovely and commendable. And and then we uh, apply those um, thoughts and, and we see the implications and the applications to our lives and we put those things into practice, a right living, then we should expect him to be with us everywhere he goes as he promises. And Jesus would say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That he is with us. And that is a, a comforting promise. And, and, and also in the sense that, that he has promised to dwell within us. And we are united with, it, with him. And we will be one with him. As John says in 1 John. As he's speaking about how a believer can be assured of his eternal salvation. Whether or not he is in the Lord, whether or not he is saved. He says this in 1 John 3, 24. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he gave us. If you have been born again, if you have been born of the Spirit, then God abides in you. And if He abides in you, then you should have a conviction and a desire to abide in Him and to keep His commandments. And though we stumble and we fall and we don't keep His commandments perfectly, there should still be that desire to abide in Him, to honor Him, to obey Him, to follow His law. And to keep in step with the Spirit because we are to be one with Him. And that was, in a sense, the the end goal of His sacrifice to redeem a people for Himself. That they would be zealous for good works, but that they would be with Him. That He would be with, with, with us as He is with the Father. And that's part of the reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because... Through his blood, through the, the, the shedding of his blood, through his sacrifice, we have been redeemed from our sinfulness. We have been redeemed from the curse of sin, from the penalty of sin, which our sins deserve. That, as the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, uh, all deserve the punishment for sin, which is an eternity in hell. But because God is not only uh, just and holy, but He is gracious and loving and forgiving, He sent His one and only Son to live a life that none of us could live, to be this perfect sacrifice for our sins, and to give Himself for sinners who repent and believe upon Him, so that He would dwell with us. We would be with Him. And in the end... As we are sanctified completely and glorified, we will be with Him and we will see Him face to face so long as we are in Him. 
And if we are in him, we try to live as he lives and purify ourselves as he himself is pure and strive for holiness and obey his commands. And one of those commands is to do what we're about to do now, and that is to uh, uh, practice uh, communion or the Lord's Supper. As he says, is as often as you... Um, me or come together, uh, do this in remembrance of me. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And just as a reminder, this uh, supper, this celebration, this ordinance with the Lord, which the Lord has given us is only for true believers. It's only for those who have been born of the Spirit, who have been born again, who have repented from their sins and believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, have been saved, and not only that, but those who are walking in obedience. And so, once again, you don't have to be a member of this church to partake with us, but you do have to be a member of the universal church, of Christ's body. You do have to be a, a true believer. And you do have to be walking in holiness. Not, not perfection, but the direction of your life. Striving for holiness. So that you would not eat it in an unworthy manner, but you are to examine it yourselves. And so we're going, I'm going to pray and uh, pray for us, and, and then the men will dismiss you to uh, come and gather the elements, and then, uh, and then I'll read uh, some passages from 1 Corinthians 11, and then we will partake together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for these exhortations concerning our thoughts and our actions and your commands and your will for us as your people. In a sense, also your will for all people, that, that you desire that all people would be saved. And certainly there are um, some here who have not come to saving faith. We do ask that you do a work in their hearts and minds, convict them, call them to yourself, convert them. But for those of us that are true believers, we pray for encouragement. We pray for strengthening. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And as we are to partake in this uh, ordinance which you have commanded us to, help us to confess any known sins and to partake with a clear conscience, but also to be encouraged. We thank you for your grace and your mercy, for your kindness, for your guidance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.